Welcome to Boiled Down, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's podcast. My name is Greg Astley. I'm Director of Government Affairs for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, and I am your host. Today, I am joined by Sarah Schenk, our Communications Coordinator for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. She is our guest host. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. And a very special guest today, we have Oregon Secretary of State Dennis Richardson. And uh, Secretary Richardson, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure to be with you. Great. Well, I promised you no uh, surprises, but I did have one question that I wanted to ask you. I know that you're spending your weekends down in Central Point and your uh, week up here in, in the Salem area. So I have to ask, what kind of car are you driving? Because I know it has to be comfortable and reliable. It is my 2008 Tahoe, which has 172,000 miles now. It's <laughs> been through two statewide campaigns, but it is reliable and it's heavy enough that in ice, snow, rain, sleet, we just keep going. Fantastic. Well, I know you had a little bit of that uh, the last couple of weekends down there. My wife just went to the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland and mm-hmm. for the opening weekend, and I know that they got a little snow down there, so I'm glad to hear that you've got a nice, safe vehicle, and uh, it's taking care of you, so that's good news. Right. That's good. <laughs> so uh, I want to jump right in and uh, talk a little bit about your historic election Uh, the first Republican elected Secretary of State since 1985, and the first Republican elected statewide since Gordon Smith in uh, 2002. So as really the only Republican statewide official, um, how are you doing with that? And and tell me maybe some of the things you're doing differently in the Secretary of State's office these days that hasn't been done previously. Well, it's a great opportunity because it's restoring the checks and balances that are so important for our form of government. Regardless of which party it is, if they are in power for too long, they start assuming that they deserve it instead of that they're the servants of the people. Mm -hmm. And so for me to be Secretary of State gives me the opportunity to be the watchdog of the people's money. And that is something I take very seriously and did while I was in Ways and Means in the legislature as well. I was going to say, yeah, your time in the state legislature, I know uh, you were praised very highly for your work on the on the budget committee. So that helped prepare me for this uh, because I'm the chief auditor for the state. And so I was on a, a radio broadcast last week and they were kind of hassling me because I admitted that I'd never really done an audit before. <laughs> right. And... I said, you know, that's that's right, I hadn't. But the people elected me not to be an auditor, but to watch out for them. And as being the people's watchdog, that's what they want, is somebody who will be full-time insur- ensuring that government is more accountable, transparent, and by doing that, you're restoring trust of the people in government. Yeah, yeah That's something that I know is um, lacking right now, probably in a lot of our elected leadership, is that level of trust in how they're conducting themselves in the business of the state. Yeah, that's true, especially because of what happens nationally. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, there's a lot of people that have been concerned about Oregon's uh, elections, that are they being hacked and are they honest and so forth. And right. So I've, I've kind of tongue-in-cheek said, well, understand, they're honest, or else I couldn't have been elected. You know, I mean, I'm here, so, <laughs> right. so that means that, uh, that they're honest. And you can't hack paper. Yeah. And so Oregon really does have an honest tabulation system because the Internet's not involved in that. Now, there's two aspects to elections. One is the tabulation, the counting of votes, which I have no concerns about at all, and the other is the registration, who's voting. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of suspicion about that, and so we've been... 
working to try and see where things really are at and restore the trust in that system as well. For instance, when I was running uh, for the office, I remember reading that 96,000 voters received more than one ballot mm. in the primary election in May. I mean, that's a lot <laughs> that of is. duplicate ballots. And over 2,000, over 2,300 actually sent in a second ballot. <laughs> now, you'd, you'd think, okay, well, they must be you know, trying to cheat the system. You can only vote once because the ballots have a barcode mm -hmm. and, and that connects. So you can only vote one time. But in this instance, I think that many of the people that did vote were elderly and they had voted and then they got another ballot. So the machine must have eaten their first one or whatever. Something, and so yeah. they send it in. If you can't prove intent to defraud or you know to violate uh, the criminal statutes, mm -hmm. then there's not a case. And so what I want to do is help ensure that we don't have that expense. It costs money to send out 96,000 extra ballots. Now, part of it, you can't get around because people do move. Sure. And they, you know, so there's old addresses and new addresses, and sometimes that doesn't get corrected. Um, but we are going back to see why it's that way. Mm -hmm. I've done something else that was interesting. I actually asked my division of elections, a man named Stephen Trout, who's very experienced with elections and is he's a, an attorney and worked in elections in California, also in Oregon. Uh, he worked as in this position for Kate Brown when she was Secretary of State, got fired. It's kind of like the queen saying, off with your head, you know, and, and that's okay. But I hired him because he is competent mm -hmm. and bright experienced and he's well respected by all the county clerks all across the state and we don't just work in a vacuum there we've got to work with the county elections people sure so anyway, he's the right guy so i said so steve i'd like you to give me a list of the households addresses where they're receiving more than 10 ballots wow I thought, you know let's a, take a look yeah and so we got 6500 of those households wow the vast majority of them were sororities, fraternities, oh. or uh, <laughs> senior, yeah. you know, care home facilities or, or assisted living homes, those kinds of things. Sure. And there was actually, he's still going through them, but after he got through about 2,000, he said there's really only two that really look suspicious, you know, where you got an address and you don't know what it is, and so you go to Google Earth and look at it and you find out it's just a small single dwelling and they've got a huge number of ballots. Right. And so we'll do further investigation. Sure. Everyone in Oregon who's eligible to vote should have the opportunity to vote, Absolutely. but not others. And so I don't think that there's rampant fraud in the, the way the elections uh, and registrations have been conducted, but that doesn't mean you don't you don't just trust, you also verify. Right, right. Well, you, you've been talking about elections, so let me kind of uh, talk a little bit more about that. And uh, you've got a redistricting commission uh, that you've put together, and I understand that those folks came to you, and you've got a you've got a pretty varied group of people there. Can you talk just a little bit about that and what's going on with that group? All right. So redistricting is the process of redrawing the boundaries for districts, and it takes place after the decennial um, census. Mm -hmm. That's I mean, every ten years you have a census, and the year after that, uh, the legislature redraws the districts because populations shift. Communities grow, communities shrink, and the idea with districts is that they need to be about equal in population. Mm -hmm. And so we have 30 
Senate districts. So it's like the whole state gets divided in, into 30 districts that are to have the equal amount of population for the senators. And then each of those districts is cut in half and you have two state representatives for each of those um, you know, of those Senate districts. Mm -hmm. So um, the way it's happened in the last hundred years is almost always the legislature, which has a responsibility to do the redistricting, uh, can't agree or the governor doesn't agree with what's coming out of the legislature. And so they don't pass the redistricting bill by, you know, a certain date. And that means it then goes to the secretary of state who can do whatever he or she wants to do with it within mm. the realm of the law. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, 2001, it was Bill Bradbury, a Democrat, who gerrymandered this state in <laughs> an incredible way. He basically took Portland and made it look like um, a hub with spokes going out into <laughs> rural Oregon, right. but stacking the registration deck in favor of his party. Sure. And, I mean, gerrymandering is a very real problem. Mm -hmm. And so... If history repeats itself, I will have the opportunity to redistrict, assuming that I got reelected. Mm -hmm. And so I've got the attention of the Democrat leaders because as the only Republican, they would just assume that I didn't do the redistricting. Sure. They're afraid that I'll do it like their uh, representatives have in the past. So I have helped facilitate this task force, which has... Representatives from you know who are Democrats, Republicans, Independent Party, Progressive Party, the head of the um, Women's um, Coalition of Women's Voters, mm -hmm. and the League of Women the, Voters, me, yeah, yeah. The, the League of Women's Voters, yep. uh, and uh, and others, you know, the small parties that um, ought to have a voice, mm -hmm. and so the invitation was, would you like to join in a a panel, a task force that, whose goal is to come up with a way to do fair, nonpartisan, unbiased elect, uh, redistricting. Sure. Because I feel as a Republican in my position, we might actually get this change to go through. Mm -hmm. It's a constitutional amendment, but it would only happen if you weren't sure that your party was going to be in charge, right? right? Because everybody wants power, right? Sure. And so if you think that you've got all the cards uh, to win the game, then why should you change it? So anyway, we've been working now for several weeks trying to come up with what is working elsewhere, what can we learn from Oregon's past, and how can we come up with a process that will be neutral, that takes the legislature out of it, and takes the politics out of it. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, our most recent meeting last night. We now will take a couple of weeks off as we take all that we've learned and put it into an amended bill, and then we'll send it out to all the people on the panel and get their their comments and see whether or not we can get a consensus that uh, that I can support as Secretary of State. And then it goes to the legislature to send out as a referral to the people to change the Constitution. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if they don't do it because they don't have time to actually deal with this kind of a problem, right. then it can be an initiative that the public could decide through their signing of petitions mm -hmm. needs to be addressed and dealt with. So that's what we're working on. I'm not doing redistricting right now. People are accusing me of doing all these things, trying to take over this, and I'm actually giving up power. I mean, one person sees it for sure. what it really is. Said, "Are you serious? You're actually willing to give up your power?" And I said, "If it will be fair and nonpartisan and in the Constitution, then it's not just about 2021. It's 
31 and 41. Mm-hmm. And so let's draft something that can make it fair in Oregon, and we can set an example of what fair and honest redistricting can be for the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah well, really paving the way there, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, and I know nationally, it's actually the Democrats that are looking for these kind of redistricting commissions or independent panels of judges right. to be doing the redistricting because they feel that they're losing seats in different areas of the country. And, and so it's, uh, I think, a little bit ironic that here in Oregon, um, you're the one that's as- actually saying, yeah. you know, this is what we should be doing. And uh, the Democrats are the ones that right now, obviously, are in power in the legislature. So It's really quite interesting because there are so many people that are suspicious of me. Mm-hmm. You know, after he's a Republican, in which they've categorized as being evil, right? Mm-hmm. Democrats are good. Republicans are evil. And there are Republicans who say, you know, the Democrats are evil and the Republicans are good. Well, neither of those are correct, right? We're right. all human beings. Yeah. There's a party and there are basic pl- uh, platforms and and principles that somewhat define the parties, but the parties are, are an organization, but we vote for individuals. And I ran as a, I'm happy to be Republican, but I'm an Oregonian first. Mm-hmm. And my goal, my promise was that I will function in this office in a nonpartisan manner because I think that that's what should happen in the Secretary of State's office. I even have a bill to make it a nonpartisan position. I don't know if that'll go anywhere or not, but you know, I think that that's what it should be. Yeah. Well, you're really turning things on its head there. I mean, that's, again, you're giving up power. You're trying to make it a nonpartisan office. I mean, your actions obviously are, are speaking louder than some of the other people's words, and I, I think you're to be commended for that. Well, thank you. I think that that's happening a lot of ways. A couple of weeks ago, I did a joint event with the Urban League of Portland, mm-hmm. uh, and it was kind of commemorating Black History Month, and there were those that were criticizing me for that, and I... But guess what? There's no campaign. Right. I mean, I don't have to do this. I'm not running for anything. I'm there. And so for the next four years, and then, you know, if I run for re-election, and if the people decide that I'm doing a good enough job to be rehired, then I'll have another four years. Mm-hmm. But my focus right now is not on campaigning. It's on reaching out to populations of minorities who have been underrepresented mm-hmm. and who don't have much of a voice. Yeah. There's promises being made to them and have been, you know, forever uh, on that we're going to make your education better, we're going to help provide safer streets, we're going to um, help uh, your families be more prosperous uh, with uh, your businesses, but very little has has happened. As Secretary of State, over I'll be over the I mean I'm o- over the corporations division, mm-hmm. so we have business interests, we have small business advocates, and so I'm working with some of the populations of minorities to try and help promote their ability to succeed in businesses so they can hire their neighbors and and have the promise of the American dream that has not extended to a lot of the minorities. Yeah. And so we that's not going to change unless the leaders change and set a different example. And so that's what I've been working on. Well, that's great. Well, you mentioned the small business advocate, and actually Ruth Miles and I go way back, and I ran into her recently and at, at the uh, dinner that we did with the Urban League. Um, and we're going to have Ruth on a future podcast here uh, for Orla, so we're very excited about that because I think she has a lot to offer our members and the business community in general. You know, it's great that Orla was willing to help sponsor the food for that event. It 
you know, we put this event on with no tax dollars. Yeah, well, we were very fortunate. One of our members stepped up, and we appreciate that uh, generosity and support, and we were very happy to do it because we do believe in, in what you're doing there. Um, and I'm going to jump to Sarah in just a second, but I do want to uh, mention you, you do have a citizen engagement and inclusion coordinator. Yes. Uh, Larry Morgan is in right. that position, and I know Larry has been working very hard uh, reaching out to those communities that you've talked about that are traditionally maybe underserved communities of color. And um, tell us just briefly about Larry's job. And if people, you know, want to get in touch with him, they can call the Secretary of State's office, I'm sure. Sure, absolutely. So Larry Morgan is in his mid-20s. He's African-American, youngest uh, member ever for the Troutdale City Council. And he's uh, just a very energetic, bright, enthusiastic, and dedicated a young man who mm -hmm. helped me with the campaign. I got to know him that way. And he has been opening doors and setting up meetings with uh, individuals and groups that normally are not reached out to by Republicans. Mm -hmm. And they some they generally are suspicious. You know, what's <laughs> why would he do this? Right. And Larry says because he really cares and he needs to learn and he wants to learn. And yeah. that's that defines who I am. And so anyway, he's been... A meeting with groups that uh, have not been represented well and helping me to have opportunities to go and, and work with them. One of my first jobs as a first events as a Secretary of State was at a naturalization ceremony mm -hmm. in Portland. There were 35 of the newest Americans in our country. And so they, you know, they were playing by the rules and they sacrificed to be there. Yeah. And some of them had traveled thousands of miles to come to America. They wanted what America had to offer. And uh, you know they had different backgrounds, different sizes, different colors, di different nat national origins. Uh, they left family and heritage so far away, and they wanted to be Americans. Yeah. And so it was an honor for me to welcome them in, to talk to them about what it means to be an American, uh, and to reflect back with the Declaration of Independence and some of its key principles, and how America is a shining light on a hill. Sometimes there's clouds, sometimes it's clear, but we're still there. Yeah. And we've been here since 1776, and we're not going anywhere because we will work through our hard times. For sure. Well, Sarah, I'm going to let you uh, jump in here. I'm sure people are tired of listening to me <laughs> ask questions. So. Nonsense. <laughs> um, so, yeah, speaking to diversity and reaching out to audiences you don't generally engage with or that are a little bit harder to reach perhaps um yeah i was just wondering if you could speak to how you've been using social media i know you're a bit diverse on the interwebs so yeah just if you could speak to how you use social media to maybe engage with audiences that otherwise wouldn't be as participatory or just any stories there well, certainly. Actually, when I was in the legislature, I would use audiovisual and go down. They have a little filming room uh, and down in the basement, and I would do four to five minute um, just speaking into the camera about different bills and different things that I was writing a newsletter on because a lot of people didn't want to read, but they didn't mind watching just a quick video cast. And then I did a newsletter, and at my height, Point, I had 525,000 email addresses That's on amazing. it, and I was referred to as the spam king <laughs> by those that were appalled that I would contact citizens and actually tell them about what's going on in government. <laughs> and you know, when you have the power, there's a tendency to want to just retain it, and you work under the radar. 
you know, and people only hear about politics when somebody's calling because they want donations mm-hmm. and, or there's a vote coming up, right? Campaigning. Sure. But my goal was to inform the people about what's happening in the Capitol. And so I winnowed that down to about 425,000 when I left uh, my office. And then my first newsletter to the large audience uh, last week, was came out last week, and it was talking about registration and talking about a letter I sent to President Trump uh, about the designation of state elections as critical infrastructure mm. under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security, which if you don't have a reason to do that, then don't let federal agencies just take power. And so I was saying he should pull pull out of that until they research it and find out why that's necessary. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was a, the kind of the subject of this newsletter that went out. And at that point, uh, last week, we cleansed everything and updated, and we had about 350,000 people. And we want to build that. And so if any of the listeners want to be informed periodically by email as to what's really going on in the state, then just send me an email uh, you know, to uh, dennis.richardson at state.or.us. Not or at <laughs> real Dennis Richardson. <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> We're not going there. No, but that's a, that's a good chance for us to actually mention a, a couple of the ways that uh, you can follow along with Secretary Richardson. He does have a Twitter account. It is at Oregon SOS. You can also see him on Facebook at Oregon.Secretary.of.State. That's a lot of dots in there. Mm-hmm. And on the web at SOS.Oregon.gov. And so at any time, you can reach out to him there. If you go on the website, uh, email addresses, uh, phone numbers are there as well for him and his staff. And so um, I know that you want to communicate with people. You want people to communicate with you. And so we'll get yeah. that information out again here as we go through the podcast. Well, great. Well, thank you for doing that. At the end of the campaign, I had over 30,000 followers or likes on my Facebook account, and it was very helpful for people to get to know me over the course of that year of the campaign, and I think that helped me win because so often people only see a caricature uh, in a 30-second in a commercial sure. where they try and you know make you look like something that has come out of the swamp, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, But in the time that I was running... Lots of questions were asked and lots were answered, and I believe that people realized that I was a person who wants to do a good job, that I'm not trying to climb into anything else, but I just want to serve, and that I've got a lot of experience, and what I said about the previous governor uh, was true. There was corruption there, and mm-hmm. that I will watch out for the people, and so regardless of party, the majority of them have said, okay, we're going to give you a chance. Great. Well, before we go to a break, um, I do want to talk for just a moment um, because you do cover so many areas as Secretary of State. Um, You've got the state agencies that you're doing audits on. You've got corporations in the business division. You've got elections, the state land board. Um, for you know, most of our podcast listeners, the restaurant and lodging industry, uh, corporations division obviously is a kind of a big part for them. What can you tell me about um, how uh, businesses can help themselves by working through the corporations division and with the Secretary of State's office? Well, one thing is we just sent out a survey to 360,000 business emails, and that was just last week. And I don't know the current number, but even if it was a low percentage, it's a bunch. It's <laughs> going to take us a while to go through them. Uh-huh. And, uh, and 
My staff in the corporations division were a little skeptical about doing this, but I said, it's important to do it. They said, well, can we just pick a few to send it to? <laughs> and I said, no, send it to everyone so that everyone knows that we are seriously interested, and then you can use you know, different analytics or however to, to actually work back through the suggestions that come in. Mm-hmm. But we want to remove red tape. We want to make things easier for businesses and uh, and make Oregon an, an example of a place where you would want to do business. And I mean, I can't control the tax structure, but I can control how you're treated sure. when you need help from the corporations division. Uh, the the small business advocate, you'd mentioned Ruth mm-hmm. Miles, and she's a wonderful woman. Uh, her job previously has been to help businesses doing business with the state to work their way through the maze of the bureaucracy we're expanding that to be state and local government. Oh, great. So if you're having difficulties in your community or in the county or city or with districts, you have someone that you can call and ask for help. And that is just tremendously valuable. And and the goal is to restore some trust and show people that the government can actually work for them and not merely be a drain on them. Yeah, I don't. I don't think very many people see value in government anymore. Uh, it's just a, a place where your taxes go to die. So um, well, it's, it's nice to yeah. know that you're doing that. Well, I, we'll do what we can. Yeah, you know, there's so many things that that we don't have control over, and we didn't get in this mess overnight. So we're not going to get out of it overnight. But like doing the audits of the state agencies, it's vitally important that they know that we're watching. Mm-hmm. And our goal, and I've talked to the auditors that we had, and there's going to be some you know, certain changes in the way we do business, but it's to become a GAO, a government accountability office for the state, mm-hmm. where without fear or favor, we're auditing, we do not pull our punches, we don't go after individuals or groups, we don't have any axes to grind, but what we want is to make it clear and open that they are accountable and transparent. And we have an audit coming out next week uh, with ODOT. And, uh, you know, they're, they have a, things are a little different in the way that this audit is being handled. And, but, you know, we, it's important for people to know where, then it deals with contracts, and I can't go into detail because sure. it's not ready yet, but it deals with how they contract with their, their bidders and how bids can be manipulated and how we can make a change so that it's fair for all that are bidding. Well, I want to I want to continue with that line of questioning. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, as Paul Harvey would say, I guess you can hear the rest of the story on ODOT and uh, and how that goes. So we'll be right back after this break. Are you in need of quality food handler training and certification? Orla is one of the largest and first providers of online food handler training in Oregon. Approved by the state, Orla's food handler training is quick and simple to complete with online courses available 24-7. Training and certification costs only $9, and the card is valid statewide for three years. Get started today at OregonFoodHandler.com. All right, well, welcome back to the Boiled Down podcast from the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. My guest host today is Sarah Shank. She's communications coordinator for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And our special guest is Dennis Richardson, the Oregon Secretary of State. You can find Secretary Richardson on the web at sos.oregon.gov. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, it is at OregonSOS. 
Well, before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about ODOT, and I wanted to ask a little bit, because I know there was a, an independent audit that was recently done uh, of ODOT, and talked about some good things, their road quality. Uh, they did a very good job with that, and some of the other things that they needed to improve were insufficient project management, inaccurate cost predictions, and being too ready to agree with consultants, which left some projects up to 90% over budget. Now, I know in the state legislature right now, there's a lot of talk about transportation packages and whether or not we're going to be able to get something out of that building or not remains to be seen. But if it, if it is, it, it's probably going to be a fairly large one. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And one of the questions I know about ODOT is, can they handle that volume of work right now? Is the agency ready? And you just mentioned an audit that the Secretary of State's office would be doing. And I realize you can't give us a lot of details, but can you tell us a little bit about what is involved in an audit and what are the things that you look at when you go to a state agency and, and audit them? Well, when I was running for this office, I would talk about auditing DHS or auditing ODOT. Well, now that I'm in the office and I realize what's involved with an audit, it's that's just too huge. We don't have the capacity to take on an agency that size. Mm -hmm. And so you look at aspects of it. Like we're doing an audit on foster care for DHS mm. because there are children's lives and futures at stake. Mm -hmm. And in ODOT, uh, the audit that we're about to release next week deals with one aspect of contracting. And so the legislature asks the department whether or not they have the capacity to do things. And they are supposed to be open and honest about it. And ODOT knows their capacity. And so if they say they can do it, then uh, you know it's important that they do it and that somebody's watching. Now, the difference between my administration and previous ones is that we will assign auditors from the beginning mm. on these $100 million or more uh, contracts because we can learn from our experience. And Cover Oregon did not need to waste $300 million. Right. It was apparent early on that it wasn't going to work. Yeah. But everybody was ignoring it. You know, As you recall, I was co-chair of Ways and Means, and yes. I was writing letters to the leaders of, of the Oregon Health Authority and Cover Oregon uh, and the, the Oregon Insurance Exchange mm -hmm. and the governor saying, look at what these, these evaluations are showing. There's red ink pouring off onto the floor. This is not going to work. And they wouldn't pay attention to it. And that was like in September right. of you know 2012. And then we had the election maybe... You know, I'm, no, it's 2011. 2011, yeah. And so the election and I lost, my, my party lost power. And so I was removed from that position because mm -hmm. I just wasn't a team player. So negative, you <laughs> How know? How dare you question yeah. that? And so then the rest is history. You know, a year later, mm -hmm. you've got the, the failure. And it was just such a tragic failure because all of that money got spent and they knew it wasn't going to work. Yeah. The leaders knew it wasn't going to work. And yet they said, yeah, October 1st, that's our date. So it's like, going into an office and having a light switch and light fixtures, but know that there's no wiring. <laughs> and so the drums roll and you reach over and you flip up the switch and nothing happens and you look surprised. <laughs> well, well, yeah, we'll get this fixed within a month or so. Right. You know what I mean? It was all a facade and that, that's the tragedy of it. And so we will have alongside auditors assigned to those kinds of projects and they will make it clear what progress is being made or not being made and it won't just go to the governor. It'll be going to the people as well. And so I hope that we can avoid these, this continuing this line of $100 million projects 
that fail and they get swept under the rug or else there's excuses made, but there's no accountability or no transparency. Yeah, well, Oregonians work hard for their money, and we want to make sure that if it's going to the government, it's being wisely spent and used so for their That's benefits. Right. So, okay. um, Did you have something, sir, you wanted to jump in? No, okay. <laughs> well, um, we talked a little bit about one of your other duties being on the state land board, and you sit on that board with uh, State Treasurer Tobias Reed and the Governor, Kate Brown. Um, I know that there was a meeting, uh, your first meeting you, you mentioned uh, recently about the uh, Elliott State Forest, and um, maybe you can talk to us just a little about your responsibilities on that board. Okay, well, first let me tell you, uh, uh, as, far, as far as the responsibilities are concerned, there's three of us that are trustees, and we are essentially managing all of the federal properties, okay, okay which includes timber, you know, riverways, uh, lots of different land and uh and property owned by the state. And so the Elliott Forest is just one piece of property. It's like 83,000 acres. And it, it dates back actually to when our state was created because Congress, when they created Oregon, they had it surveyed and divided it into townships that were like six miles by six miles. And then each in each township, there were 36 one-mile square sections. Hmm. And so when they created our state, they dedicated two sections in every township for public education. And it's to be used to support public education. Mm -hmm. So in the 1930s, you had a man named, I think it's Francis Elliott. He was the first state forester. And he took it upon himself to actually contact the federal government and say, look, you got all these federal lands and in each of these townships, there's two sections. We would like to trade these two sections that are out in the hinterland and put them all into one aspect of federal land that's that grows trees. Hmm. It's rural. It's uh, northeast of um, Coos Bay. It's steep, uh, but it gets a lot of rain, and they grow trees fast. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he was able to compile these, these sections into this forest, and the forest is dedicated for the support of public education. And so that means it's supposed to generate money right. for the Common School Fund, which is this big fund of money that's invested, and we pay portions of it uh, every year out, you know, to the schools all mm -hmm. across the state. So that was all done, and when we were logging, it was generating some money. Sure. But in recent years, it's actually been costing the Common School Fund because we got the marbled marlette, uh, you know, endangered species, the spotted right. owl, and coho salmon, and and some large trees that are old growth. Right. And then you have lots of, of new growth trees that are, you know, 60 to 80 years old, um, but they haven't been allowed to be, you know, to be cut in a mm -hmm. way that even broke even. Right. So uh, in August of 2015, the land board at that time, which was Governor Kate Brown and Secretary of State Gene Atkins and Treasurer Ted Wheeler, mm -hmm. they decided to to meet their responsibilities as trustees of this trust, they've got to be able to generate money. And sure. so they ought to sell the, the Elliott to private interests and then take the money and put it in the common school fund because it can be invested and generate cash. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they came up with a price, $220.8 million, which I think is way low. Right. I mean, it should have done bidding and all this, but... I wouldn't have voted for the way that they were approaching it, but I wasn't there. It was three <laughs> Democratic members of the land board. Right. So in August 2015, they made the decision, we're going to sell. And they listed a, a, some requirements, protocols for the sale. 
and they put it out. And at first there were 49 different groups that were interested, the Audubon Society and a bunch of others. But when it came time to actually perform, only one bid came through that had raised the $220.8 million that were going to, uh, com to comply with all of the other requirements in the protocol, access for the people and right. so forth. And so that was last fall. And then in December, uh, enough, a lot of people found out you're going to sell the Elliot, and they were unhappy with that. And so hundreds of people started writing in and all this. And so the governor has taken the position, we're not going to sell the Elliot. And, and so they're cheering and applauding mm -hmm. her. And so we have a new treasurer, Tobias mm -hmm. Reed, and myself, Secretary of State, and we're saying, but wait a second, you're the one that offered this for sale. You, you, you set it up, it's been accepted, and now you're saying you're not going to do it. And yet, you know, what about your promise? Right. Part of the consortium that is buying it are some of the tribes. And so what I reminded her, I said, you know, for hundreds of years, 100, 100, 200 years ago, we'd sign contracts with the Indians and say, as long as the rivers flow and the grass will grow, you're going to have this land or until we change our mind. And now you said we're going to get, get you back some of your property, you know, some, some lands that some you can land, call, yeah. you know, for your tribal uh, heritage as well. And now you're saying, I, I changed my mind. I said, that's not the way it works. When you make an offer and that offer gets accepted, then you have a deal, even if there have to be points that have to be worked out. Sure. And so you got the tribes in Lone Rock and they have spent over half a million dollars complying with these protocols. Mm -hmm. The Department of State Lands has spent three and a half million dollars complying with the protocols, and the governor's decided, I'm, I don't want to sell it after all. And so Tobias Reed and I had the unpleasant duty to say, I'm sorry, you can't do that. We're going to make a few minor changes in this, like enable the, the tribes to have first right if you go to sell the, the, the property to someone else and that kind of thing. Um, but you got to go through with the deal. Yeah. So the deal's going through, and yet we're being vilified for selling the forest as if it's Yosemite, you know, or, or Shampooey. But right. it's not. It's a land trust that, I mean, there's no facilities. There's only some logging roads there. They only have a few hundred people a year that actually go into it to hunt or fish. Hmm. Just because I've talked to the foresters, I went out and went through the forest yeah. to see it, mm -hmm. to see what we were dealing with. And so I know firsthand what it's like. So it's an unpleasant situation because they should have tied this up last December when that previous land board finally met, but they put it over. And so, you know, it's for political reasons, it's going the route that it is, but right. um, we've had to put up with the political fallout of keeping the promise that the governor made when she offered it for sale in August of 2015. Yeah, well, when it comes to those contracts, maybe we need to remind the governor that much like PERS, if we're going to continue to honor that contract, then we need to honor the other contracts that we've made as well. So, yeah, I understand. Great. Well, um, just a couple more uh, questions that I, I want to talk to you about. I, again, appreciate so much your time being here today. You've got a, a special project going on right now uh, with the Archives Division. I know that's another area mm -hmm. that you're responsible for under the Secretary of State's. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the Oregon Constitution and what your project is that you're hoping to get done. Well, thank you. The Archives is where all of our documents, uh, old and current, are kept. And so I'm the Secretary of State, and so that means that documents, laws that are passed, and, and all of the, the old documents, they all end up under my care and control in the archives. And we have a wonderful head archivist there. Her name is Mary Beth Herkett, and she's been there for 30 years nearly. And 
uh, she sh was showing me the Constitution. And the Constitution was written in 1857, and then it took two years to get back and for us to, to D.C. and us to become a state, uh, it, which, which happened in 1859. But this document is getting pretty old. And so it's just in a box, and you look at the document, and it, it's fading, and the paper is getting you know, really brittle. And so she's been working on a project, and we are going to finish this project. And it's to restore the Oregon Constitution to as good a condition as it can be, mm -hmm. and then to build a case that is you know, bulletproof and vandalism-proof, that has constant temperature and humidity to help maintain the condition of the Constitution uh, in its restored condition, and have it be visible so that kids coming on field trips and families can go and see the Constitution of the state of Oregon and be reminded about the pioneer heritage that we have and those that gave so much to come here to hopefully promise a life for their posterity. And so we drink from wells we didn't dig, and we need to remember those that did. Yeah. Excellent, yeah. I'm headed back to uh, Washington, D.C. at uh, the end of this month, and I'm very excited, actually, to go see the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. So I think having the Oregon Constitution uh, restored would be, would be fantastic. It really will, and we're not using tax money. And so we're asking those that would like to see this happen to go to our website, and we have a crowdfunding source on the Secretary of State's <laughs> website. So we're raising money, and we've re, you know people are giving from ten dollars all the way up to thousands. We need to raise a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, and so the last time I looked, we were at about sixty-six thousand or seven thousand dollars. And so we're hoping that some more substantial donors can come in. But we've had kids that you know, where they've got gathered money in their classrooms mm -hmm. and they send in you know, the, the pennies parade. And all of those things are appreciated. And some schools have, have worked until they came up with $250 and they'll be remembered. It's a lot of pennies. <laughs> it is. And, but they're a part of, of our history. Mm -hmm. And so, so if you've been blessed financially and would like to contribute to that, just go to our website. You can either get credit for it or be anonymous. It doesn't matter, but we need to raise 100000 and it needs to happen in the next 30 days or so, even if I have to get on the phones and start calling, so that we have time to get it done by the end of summer. Sure. And that website, again, is sos.oregon.gov. Uh, you can visit that website and hopefully make a contribution uh, to the archive uh, project that's going on to, to restore the, the Oregon Constitution. Very excited about that. So um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, this is kind of your time to just open it up. And I was curious, what are some of the short-term and some of the long-term goals you have in this office? Because we've talked a lot about what's on your plate. I mean, you have so many different areas that you're responsible for, and I know you're making headway in, in reaching out to some of the underserved communities. You've talked about that. You've talked about the great project that you're doing here with the Restoring the Oregon Constitution. But uh, what broadly, what, what are some of the goals you have, uh, both short and long-term, for this office? Okay, well, I, I look at each of the divisions as if that's all that I had to do, mm -hmm. you know, and I work with them. Uh, we're trying to help introduce a culture um, adjustment among the whole agency uh, using the Arbinger Institute, and, and they really focus on mindset change, not behavioral change, mm -hmm. not learning how to do reflective listening, but learning to listen. I mean, th that it's important to pay attention to other people, that everyone is as important as you are. They just have different 
jobs and different backgrounds and so forth. And so it's about helping people be happy in our agency to come to work mm -hmm. and then working more effectively and more efficiently to benefit the state because we're public servants. I mean, I could be retired, but I'm here because it's, it's my opportunity to serve. Yeah. And so I'm in a, an apartment seven blocks away from the Capitol. My <laughs> wife's in Medford Central Point, and I get to see her a couple times a month on weekends. It's like being deployed with a couple of leaves. Right. But it's okay because I knew what I was getting into, and I can do it. Mm -hmm. And so we're, I'll be focusing closely on the audits division because we need to ensure that the people's money is well spent. And I think that we can do that best. I mean, one of the things I can accomplish that's going to be most important is to make things more transparent, help agencies that are wasting money to become more accountable, mm -hmm. and those that are doing well to get applause, but not just keep sweeping things under the rug as if it didn't matter because every dollar that comes to the state is coming from somebody's wallet or bank account, yep. and I treat it as if it's my money. That's great. Well, we appreciate that. Well, before we let you go, um, I have a small favor to ask. I know that you were uh, doing some reading a little earlier today, uh, Dr. Seuss Day, and uh, we have a special book here. It's uh, particularly relatable for our, our restaurant industry. And so right now, Secretary, I'd like to ask if you wouldn't mind reading a few pages out of Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham. All right, we're talking about menu items here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have a guy who's sitting in a chair and he looks over as this other guy bounds in. And he says, I'm Sam. I, Sam, I am. And then this guy in the chair looks up and he says, that's Sam, I am. That's Sam, I am. I do not like that Sam, I am. And Sam says, so do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam, I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Well, would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. Would you eat them with, in a box? Would you eat them with a fox? Not in a box, not with a fox, not in a house, not with a mouse. I would not eat them here or there. I would not eat them anywhere. I would not eat green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Would you, could you, in a car, eat them, eat them. Here they are. I would not, could not, in a car. You may like them, you will see. You may like them in a tree. I would not, could not, in a tree. Not in a car. You let me be. I do not like them in a box. I do not like them with a fox. I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. A train, a train, a train, a train. Could you, would you, on a train? Not on a train, not in a tree, not in a car, Sam. Let me be. I would not, could not, in a box. I would not, could not, with a fox. I will not eat them with a mouse. I will not eat them in a house. I will not eat them here or there. I will not eat them anywhere. I do not eat green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. Say, 
in the dark. Here in the dark. Would you, could you, in the dark? I would not, could not, in the dark. Would you, could you, in the rain? I would not, could not, in the rain, not in the dark, not on a train, not in a car, not in a tree. I do not like them, Sam, you see? Not in a house, not in a box, not with a mouse, not with a fox. I will not eat them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. You do not like green eggs and ham? <laughs> I do not like them, Sam. I am. Would you, could you, with a goat? <laughs> I would not, could not, with a goat. Would you, could you, in a boat? I would not, could not, in a boat. I would not, will not, with a goat. I will not eat them in the rain. I will not eat them on a train. Not in the dark. Not in a tree. Not in a car. You let me be. I do not like them in a box. I do not like them with a fox. I will not eat them in a house. I will not eat them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. You do not like them? So you say, try them, try them, and you may. Try them, and you may, I say. Sam, if you will let me be, I will try them. You will see. Hmm. Hmm. Say. I like green eggs and ham. I do. I like them, Sam I am. And I would eat them in a boat. And I would eat them with a goat. And I will eat them in the rain and in the dark and on a train and in a car and in a tree. They are so good. So good, you see. So I will eat them in a box and I will eat them with a fox and I will eat them in a house and I will eat them with a mouse. And I will eat them here and there. Say, I will eat them anywhere. I do so like green eggs and ham. Thank you. Thank you, Sam I am. Excellent. <laughs> wow. You have just set the bar so high for our future guests, Mr. Secretary. Thank you so, so much. I have lots bets. of grandkids. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that. We are going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Um, thank you. Thank you for that great reading. I would totally place my bets that Sam I am is a chef from Oregon. All that mention of rain and goats. And <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's got to be. Uh, take care, y'all. Get your staff food handler trained and certified by Oregon's highest quality training provider. Orla provides easy-to-follow, interactive training that is valid statewide for three years. Employees can get the state-mandated food handler card they need on their schedule with online courses available 24-7. And now for only $9. Go to OregonFoodHandler.com today. All right. Welcome back to Boiled Down, a podcast by the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And once again, that was Secretary of State Dennis Richardson reading from Green Eggs and Ham. Thanks again. We appreciate that. At this time, we're going to move into our advocacy watch and keep you up to date on what you need to know and what's going on in the state of Oregon around government affairs. First thing I'd like to talk about is a new study that was conducted by CBRE Hotels America's Research. It was funded by the American Hotel and Lodging Education Foundation, and it has to do with Airbnb and the growth of what are quote-unquote illegal hotels. They're often unregulated properties operating in residential neighborhoods. And in Portland, Portland was one of 13 cities actually that was um, focused on in this study. The revenue that was generated by multi-unit entire home hosts increased by 123 percent 
So that now totals more than $14 million in the city of Portland. And what that means is 77% of Airbnb's Portland revenue comes from entire home rentals. Wait, wait, did I hear you right? 77%? Yeah, 77% of Airbnb. What do you mean by entire home? So entire home is what is defined as where the owner is not present. Mm -hmm. So they've rented out the entire house as opposed to what the myth of Airbnb started out as, which was the kind of mom and pop sharing. Hang out on my couch, get to know your your neighbors and locals. Yep, they're renting out a room or two to try to make ends meet. And that still happens, obviously, but it only happens 23% of the time. Yeah, it's sounding more like a business over here. Absolutely, which is why they are quote-unquote illegal hotels. Now, what's even more interesting is that hosts that have three or more units earned 54% of the total revenue generated by uh, the multi-unit hosts. So that means that they had more than three three or more properties that they were renting out. And we can definitely get into the housing market here and lack of affordable housing. Absolutely. It's one of the key contributors, we think, to the housing uh, affordability and availability, especially for our hospitality industry members. Mm-hmm. So it's important. Um, so that study is out, and I know that... Um, uh, yeah, we actually have those on our website. If you want to um, get links to those reports and read more about it, you can go to OregonRLA.org slash GA. Um, that's going to be our government affairs section. Great. So more information there, and you can also read about the next couple of bills that I'm going to talk about. Uh, the first one is restrictive scheduling. We actually have a House bill, House Bill 2193, and a Senate bill, Senate Bill 828. Those are our restrictive scheduling, which would require an employer to pay an employee the equivalent of at least four hours of work if the employee is scheduled or called into work, uh, but due to the employer doesn't work the entire shift. And of course, we're opposed to this bill. There's a lot of mitigating circumstances for employers, whether uh, the recent protests that we had in the city of Portland, for example, I know a lot of uh, employers wanted to keep their employees home and safe because of that. And actually, the research that we have shows that um, almost 75% of workers, of employees, don't want the government to mess with their scheduling. And uh, we had a couple of panels, one for the House bill and one for the Senate bill, uh, restaurant owners and operators, and then some servers as well that came and testified against that. Yeah, definitely. And most of the people I know in Portland, if they're in the industry, they want the flexibility. Like, that's why they're there. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of the key reasons why people get involved with the hospitality industry. A big thank you to our members who did come out to testify on those bills. We appreciate you stepping up and helping out. Uh, We definitely need to keep seeing this in the future. Yeah, we understand how hard it is uh, for owners and employees to take time away from the business and and get out of those restaurants, but it is important. So thank you to everyone that did that. We have a couple of uh, tourism-related bills coming up here as well. So House Bill 3101 would prohibit hotels or inns from charging any kind of a facility fee in addition to the price uh, of a guest room rental, and we are opposed to that bill as well. We have no problem with letting customers know, obviously, about any fees that they might incur while they're at a lodging property. But to take away the ability uh, and the choice uh, that we have to uh, charge any kind of an additional facility fee, we believe is wrong. The second one is uh, Senate Bill 745. It's also House Bill 2506, and it would establish the Ocean Beach Fund. So that would take a portion of the transient lodging tax revenues and put it into a new fund that would be managed by the State Parks and Recreation Department. Now, we oppose this bill as well, uh, in part because it carves out money from the TLT revenue for a specific fund, and it could be used to pay for things like beachfront development, sand management, and severe storm responses. 
And uh, th- that's really a problem when you start carving out that kind of money for different areas. Yeah, no pun here on the slipping sands, but this definitely sounds like a slippery slope here. Um, seeing this potentially happening in Southern Oregon, uh, Eastern Oregon, um, just trying to take funds away. Yeah, absolutely. The problem with that, of course, is that uh, the more you take that money away, the less is left for promotion and marketing. And that's really what puts heads in beds. And uh, once you start doing that, um, the lodging tax revenues are going to go down and then we won't have as money as much money for everybody. So uh, that can be a real problem. The final bill uh, that I want to talk about real quick is House Bill 2768, which actually expands the definition of tourism promotion for purposes of the local transient lodging tax revenue expenditures. And essentially, uh, this bill would allow municipalities to use those TLT funds to do road and sidewalk maintenance, uh, repair restrooms, or uh, put up park benches and do beautification projects. And again, we oppose this bill. Um, takes dollars away from the tourism promotion and marketing And in our opinion, the kinds of projects that they're talking about do not uh, contribute to increasing room nights. Uh, And so, again, that would mean less revenue in the future. Finally, uh, we do expect to see bills related to paid family leave, um, transportation, hopefully, a package that's going to help with Oregon's failings infrastructure, and something on wage equity. And for more information on these or other bills that we're tracking, you can go to OregonRLA.org slash GA, or you can email me, askedly, at OregonRLA.org. Greg, one more thing I want to bring up, actually. Orla's new member benefit that we have going on right now for this podcast episode, um, and just something you should know in general, we just launched another way for our busy members to stay up to date on key issues, legislative activities, and what Orla is up to. Um, these are called our 90-second serving videos, and members can actually get these twice a month in emails and view them online at OregonRLA.org. So this is a great way if you're just on the go. Um, find these on our Facebook, our Twitter, um, and our YouTube as well. All right, Sarah. Well, thank you very much for that information. And just as a reminder, everybody, you can find us on the web, OregonRLA.org. Also, uh, subscribe on iTunes. You can uh, catch us there and on SoundCloud as well. And if you'd like to send us an email, uh, give us some feedback, or if you have any future topics you'd like us to cover, it's info at OregonRLA.org. My name is Greg Astley. I'm your host, and thanks for listening.